If you've got a Bible with you, turn to Acts 25. We're going to be in Acts 25 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through the end of the chapter, and I've entitled the message this morning as the blind leading the blind, the blind leading the blind, and you'll kind of see what that means as we get going in our passage together this morning as we're back in the book of Acts in chapter 25 this morning, looking at verses 13 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. So let me read to us, and then we'll jump into our time together. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left, uh, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes with the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write." For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing out songs filled with your truth and the light of grace and the infinite mercy that you show to us through Christ. Thank you for the reading of the scripture this morning through Galatians 5 and again here in Acts 25. Help us to understand, Lord, what you want us to to learn about the case of Paul before Festus and now before King Agrippa. Help us to examine this passage and this text in a way that would help us examine our own hearts to see how we can grow in our love for you and not be led astray by the blind. Help us, we pray, in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the introduction to chapter 5 of MacArthur's book entitled The Vanishing Conscience, this story is told of Tom Wolfe's 
1987 blockbuster novel entitled The, The Bonfire of Vanities. There's a story about a fictional, young, Wall Street tycoon named Sherman McCoy. This main character is caught in a scandal after his mistress and him accidentally took the wrong exit off of a New York freeway. Lost in the wrong part of town, they were threatened by some thugs who tried to block their car. And one of the oncoming attackers is seriously injured when the car strikes him as McCoy and his lover are fleeing the scene. The injured man lies in a coma for more than a year before eventually dying. Meanwhile, the case becomes a political disaster as the press has a heyday, and obvious pressure is put on the criminal justice system to solve this case. The book tells the story of how McCoy's world slowly and painfully unravels. Though not guilty of many of the charges brought against him, McCoy is by no means innocent. His troubles begin because he is trying to conceal his adultery. He compounds his own guilt with a series of lies in an attempt to cover it up. His own duplicity draws him deeper and deeper into a quagmire for which he will not escape. And in the end, he loses his career, and he loses his wife, and he loses his family, and he loses everything that he held dear. This is an amazing story of which he would probably follow up in a long prison term. Now, Wolf's book anticipated with remarkable accuracy a string of celebrity scandals that characterized the second half of the 1980s. Some of you certainly remember Jim and Tammy Baker, Gary Hart, Jimmy Swaggart, Michael Milken, and a host of others who saw their lives degenerate in a manner reminiscent of the fictional Sherman McCoy. What all these cases demonstrate so graphically is the destructive catastrophic effects of sin. Sin, once begun, will eat away like gangrene at the human soul. It will dishonor you. It will expose you. It will scandalize you, and it will ultimately destroy your life. As Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure that your sin will find you out. This morning, we're going to be looking and learning about two men and one woman who struggle in their own quagmire of sin. There is Festus, the new governor of Judea, who is playing politics with the Jews. And while Festus was a better man than his predecessor, Felix, he doesn't even know who Jesus was or how to deal with this inherited prisoner, Paul. And then we're gonna be introduced to a new character today, Jewish King Agrippa II and Bernice, who arrive involved in a sexually immoral relationship. And somehow they had heard part of Paul's story and wanted to hear more of his trial. And as Festus looks to King Agrippa for help in understanding the Jewish faith, we have a perfect example of the blind leading the blind. Festus doesn't have a clue who Jesus is, and King Agrippa had rejected Jesus altogether. Their sin of idolatry, pride, and sexual immorality has blinded them both from clearly seeing on this issue. The truth is, if you're blind in one area, it is really hard for you to see clearly in another. Specifically, if you don't see Jesus as being the author and the perfecter of the Christian faith, then you will be blind. 
I'm sorry, you are blind if you don't see Jesus as being God in the flesh who is fully God and fully man. You are blind if you don't see Jesus as the perfect son of God who alone can take away your sin. You are blind if you don't see Jesus as having supreme authority over all people and over all places and over all powers. And you are blind this morning if you think you have the answers, whereas the truth is Jesus alone is the answer. And you are blind if you are trying to live your life according to your own wisdom, your own knowledge, and your own feelings. But the good news for you this morning, for all of us this morning is, you don't have to be blind anymore. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus is the one who enlightens unregenerated souls. And Jesus radiates the glory of our great God. And Jesus is shining in the darkness. And Jesus is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You don't have to be blind. You don't have to be lost anymore. You don't have to live your life in confusion. You don't have to stay in the darkness. Jesus brings you out of the kingdom of darkness and brings you into the kingdom of light. And praise God that Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says he's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, this morning I've broken down our text into three sections that will help us see, number one, the scandalous nature of sin. We'll see that from verses 13 through 14. And then number two, we're gonna look at the deceptive rationalization of sin in verses 15 to 22. And then finally, we'll see the prideful display of sin in verses 23 through 27. So let's start out with number one this morning. Number one, the scandalous nature of sin. And if you are taking notes this morning, our first blank says, King Agrippa's public life. King Agrippa's public life. There in verse 13 it says, now when some days have passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. And so after, after some days had passed, when Paul had appealed to Caesar, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, and they had come to pay their respects to the new governor, Festus. And Agrippa had actually grown up in Rome and was, by this time, around 30 years of age. He was the ruler of some of the territories northeast of Palestine and had been given the title of king. He was the last of the Herodians to rule, and it was his great grandfather, King Herod the Great, who had ruled at the time of Jesus' birth. King Herod the Great was known as an incredible innovator, known for, for his colossal building projects throughout Judea. The most famous of his accomplishments would have been rebuilding the second temple there in Jerusalem and the expansion of its base on the Temple Mount, including the Western Wall. Matthew 2, 1 through 19, and Luke 1, verse 5, record that it was this King Herod the Great who ordered the massacre of all of the male children in Bethlehem, two years old or under. He was troubled from his conversation with the wise men that a new king had been born in Bethlehem, and Herod the Great was always fearful that someone would rise up and overthrow his kingdom. Therefore, he systematically killed off anyone regarded as a threat. He murdered his sister's husband, then his wife's grandfather. Herod divorced one wife and executed another after it was reported that she and her mother were plotting against him. Josephus, well-known Roman historian, recorded that King Herod the Great even murdered three of his own sons. 
Then it was King Agrippa's great uncle who was Herod Antipas, who also had a prominent place in the gospel accounts. Mark 6, 14 to 29 records how Herod Antipas was responsible for executing John the Baptist and bringing his head out on a platter at a banquet in honor of his wife Herodias. Luke 13, 31 through 33 describes how King Herod Antipas sought Jesus' life. And in Luke 23, 7 through 12, it was King Herod Antipas who worked together with Pilate to have Jesus crucified. It was King Agrippa's father, King Agrippa I, who in Acts 12, 1 through 3, killed the apostle James with the sword and had Peter arrested. King Agrippa I, this King Agrippa's father, died at the end of Acts 12 when he put on his royal robes and pridefully took his seat upon the throne and delivered some self-exalting speech in Acts 12, 22 through 23 says, and the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So now, here in Acts 25, we have King Agrippa II, whose relation with the Herodian dynasty had been well documented. And that's a little bit about the public life and association of the family background of King Agrippa II. But now let's look at his private life. Your next blank, King Agrippa's private life. You see there again in verse 13 that he enters not alone, but he comes to Caesarea there with Bernice, with Bernice. King Agrippa's private life was truly scandalous. Bernice was not only his queen consort, but was his sister. Their other sister, Drusilla, was the wife of the former governor, Felix. Their incestuous relationship was the subject of gossip in Rome. And Bernice would occasionally leave her brother for another lover, another lover, another man, but then she would often come back to her brother. And history records that this Bernice actually had flings with the emperor Vespasian, and later with, it was the mistress of his son, Titus. But invariably, she would come back to her brother, King Agrippa II. And so Agrippa and Bernice are actually inseparable in the Acts narrative as they are mentioned together in this verse, also in verse 23 together, and then in chapter 26, verse 30, you see them together again. It's almost like the author of Acts, who is Luke, is reminding us over and over again that it is Agrippa and Bernice. And some have suggested that she is a real-life symbol of Agrippa's vice, like she is his scarlet letter, like a reminder of his unrelenting sin, that this is a gross perversion. And the fact that Agrippa is enslaved to this sexually immoral sin is something that everyone knew about, but no one addressed. Agrippa and Bernice were from a Jewish family. They should have known better. Leviticus 18 verse 9 couldn't be any more clear. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister. And the fact is, no one cared. They were somehow enamored with the Herodian connection. I mean, this was a power family. This family was popular in Rome. It was like this family had their own reality show, their own fashion line, their own brand. No one could keep up with the Herodians. And no one could compare with their money and their popularity and their flair. And the family had been around for generations. 
The Herodian dynasty reigned for over 130 years. So we've seen King Agrippa's public life. We've learned a little bit, unfortunately, about King Agrippa's private life. And now let's briefly look at your third blank this morning, King Agrippa's place in Judaism. His place in Judaism. Look at verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. Although King Agrippa did not rule over Judea, he had been granted the oversight of the temple treasury. I mean, it sounds like the kind of guy you want to be in charge of the money, right? It's part of what came with his position and his clout. He also had the responsibility of actually appointing the high priest. And he obviously didn't do so good of a job because every high priest he appointed was corrupt and wanted to kill the followers of Jesus. The Romans considered Agrippa as an expert in Jewish affairs, but it was more of a a political expertise than a theological one. And later, Agrippa tried to prevent the Jewish revolt, but when it broke out in AD 66, he sided with the Romans and so became a traitor to his own people. Governor Festus actually outranked Agrippa as the Jews were subservient to Rome, but nevertheless, Festus wanted to lay Paul's case before the king to get whatever insight he could from Agrippa's Jewish connections. And in all of this, we see the scandalous nature of sin. Sin is like the poison of a mamba snake. It is exceedingly deadly. It kills. Every sin, if permitted, will become domineering in its demands and every lust will aim at its maximum expression. Sin is like the devil, its originator. It is limitless for its capacity for evil. And the Bible teaches that sin is present in every human heart. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we do not understand our own sinfulness or see our sin as God sees it, then we cannot understand or make sense of sin's remedy the Lord Jesus Christ. If we deny our guilt or hide or embrace our sinful desires, then we are deceived into thinking that somehow our sin is worth it. If we ultimately try to justify our sin, then we could be forfeiting the justification of God. Until we understand what an utterly abhorrent thing our sin is, we can never see or understand the holiness of God. Sin is abominable to God. He hates it. And when telling Israel not to follow the pagan nations around them, Deuteronomy 12.31 says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done. Habakkuk tells us in 1.13 says this of God, it says that you are that you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Sin is contrary to God's very nature. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And the ultimate penalty of sin is death and that is true for even the smallest of infractions like James 2.10 which says for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Sin stains the soul. 
It degrades a person's nobility. It darkens the mind. It makes us even worse than animals in the sense that animals cannot sin. Sin pollutes. Sin defiles. Sin kills. All sin is gross, disgusting, loathsome, and revolting in God's sight. In the Bible, sin is compared to the vomit, and sinners are like dogs who lick it up. Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Sin is called mire, and sinners are the swine who, who love to wallow in it. 2 Peter 2.22 says that what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is what had happened to King Agrippa II. He was enslaved to. He was, he was caught in his sin. He couldn't see clearly. He couldn't think clearly. And this is what we all have to be on the lookout for. Sin can creep in and it can grab a hold of your life. And it can destroy your marriage. And it can ruin your family. And we're to be very aware of the scandalous nature of sin. But we also need to be aware of, number two, the deceptive rationalization of sin. Your next blank says the deception of the Jewish leaders, and we read about that in verses 15 through verse 19. It says, and when I was in Jerusalem, Festus is speaking, he says the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered this man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Just simply making the case that the Jews are deceived. There's deception going on here. In these verses, Festus is recounting what happened when he did go to Jerusalem and he did talk to the chief priest and the elders of the Jews and they, they laid out their case against Paul and they asked for a sentence of condemnation against him. Now the Jews had actually asked for the opportunity to try Paul in Jerusalem instead of in Caesarea where he was being held. And if you remember verse three of the same chapter says that they were asking a favor against Paul that he summoned him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And so somewhere along the way, Festus is realizing that the Jews wanted a sentence of condemnation, as it says here in this verse. They wanted condemnation against Paul. And if they didn't get it from Festus, they were full willing to kill Paul themselves. The Jews had tried to be nice and ask for a favor, but if they didn't get what they wanted, they were ready to take matters into their own hands. And so steeped in the proud tradition of the unrivaled system of justice in Rome, Festus properly answered them that it was not the custom for the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And although Paul had already faced his accusers before Felix and was not convicted, Festus wanted to exercise his own authority and hear the case himself before rendering any judgment. So a few days later, 
Festus did hear from Paul's accusers in verses 7 and verses 8 where Paul denies all of their accusations. And the problem is that the Jews were deceived into thinking that they were somehow doing the world a favor by killing Paul, whereas what they really were trying to do was to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. They were willing to compromise. They were so deceived. They're going to kill an innocent man just to get rid of him. In fact, they had no evil at all to accuse Paul of or that would ever lead to his death. And so the real reasons that the, the Jews wanted to kill Paul was because Paul preached Christ. And we talked about this as we look back, just flip back to chapter 24, verse 20, where Paul says so much. In Acts 24, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while I was standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In other words, Paul's saying, look, let me tell you the real reason why I'm on trial. Doesn't have anything to do with me bringing Trophimus, the Ephesian Gentile, into the temple. Doesn't have anything to, with me defiling the temple or not following the Mosaic Covenant. We can argue about that stuff all day long. The real reason that I'm on trial here is because I preach Christ and I preach Christ crucified. Paul didn't just preach Christ dead, he preached him alive and that he was resurrected. This is like what Paul preached on Mars Hill in Acts 17, where he said in verses 30 and 31 of Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in other words, Paul says, judgment's coming because if God raised Jesus from the dead, then you will be judged on how you relate to the Lord Jesus. The point being that he did raise him from the dead. And so back in Caesarea, Festus was now confused about the whole issue it's not maybe about some criminal thing that Paul had done, but rather it's about his commitment to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The dispute then was about religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but now that Paul says is alive. And this leads us to verses 20 through 22, where we see the hesitation of of Festus. So you see the deception of the Jews thinking they had to kill Paul. Now the hesitation of Festus of what to really do with him, verses 20 through 22, says, being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and, and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. In these verses, we just see how Festus is now off of his game a little bit. He, he's confused. He doesn't know exactly what to do. He doesn't even know what questions to ask. He did inquire if Paul might be willing to go back to Jerusalem to be tried by the chief priest and the elders there, but Paul's response couldn't have been any more clear from verses 10 and 11. Look here in Acts 25 at verses 10 and 11. It says, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. So again, Paul's not afraid. He's not afraid of doing anything or even dying. But what we're seeing is that Festus is somehow trying to put blame on Paul for him appealing to Caesar, where in actuality, Festus is the one hesitating because of his fear of man. And even though Festus conceded to send Paul to Rome, he still hasn't done so yet. And if the governor had really done the right thing and rendered justice, then he would have already released the innocent apostle. But in this case, there's no appeal process that, w- that would have been necessary if, if that's what he would, he, would, he would do. But in this case, he does decide to send him to Rome. And yet he's not gone yet. He's still awaiting his voyage to Rome. And so at this point, Agrippa most likely is somewhat flattered that Festus, even though he outranks Agrippa, would share all these details with him, appealing to his expertise as well as to his curiosity. And so that's why he says here in verse 22, hey, I would like to hear the man myself, to which Festus replied, tomorrow you shall hear him. Again, what we're talking about here is the deceptive rationalization of sin. Festus had justified his decision to send Paul to Rome, whereas he should have actually set him free. Agrippa had rationalized his sin with Bernice, who is his sister, as well as he had, he had a very compromising view of his Jewish heritage. The Jews had rationalized that somehow killing Paul was better than obeying the Mosaic law. And the truth is, we all are tempted to rationalize our sin. We are deceived into thinking and in that moment, for various reasons, it's somehow okay It's okay to have a lustful thought. It's okay to have another drink. It's okay to shout back or it's okay to somehow compromise just this once. And the problem is not with the world or with other people. The problem is within our own hearts. As David said in Psalm 51, 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity talking about his own sinful nature that you and I are born into. And Paul elaborates further on our depravity in Romans 3, 10 through 12, when he says it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, all have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God wants us to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We dare not take sin lightly or dismiss our own guilt frivolously. We, when we see sin for what it is, we need to learn to hate it like God hates it because sin attempts to pervade our inmost beings and sin is at the very core of our human soul. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19 through 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So in other words, you can't blame it on somebody else. You have yourself to look at before God. What I'm saying to you is if you're not careful, we also could be deceived and hesitate to make the right decision just like we're seeing here with Festus and with Agrippa. This is a reminder that that sin still exists within us. It's part of our very nature. And sin is not just a weakness or a flaw, it's at the core of who we are. Now again, I know you're thinking, yeah, but I've been regenerated. 
I've been given a new nature. I don't have to fight with that anymore. And yet, at the same time, you know from what Scripture teaches in your own experience, the battle wages every day. We're fighting against temptation. And the things that we don't want to do, sometimes we do. And the things that we do do, we don't want to do, as Romans 7 talks about. We just got to be reminded this morning that it's right there. And I, like, I, like, I think it's important for us to acknowledge it's right there because we're just so prone to, to blame it on someone else or to blame it on circumstances. I love when I'm doing marriage counseling. I, I love to try to help couples see that the problem is not really their spouse. The problem is them. And I, and I love to just turn to James 4. In fact, just turn there real quick. If you, you need some counseling this morning. Yes, yes, you do. We all do, right? Turn to James 4 just to be reminded of this truth where it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And typically in counseling, if there's a marriage problem, they're thinking, well, my spouse does. My wife causes fights. My husband causes the fights because it's just the question being asked. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And then Paul gives the answer. He says, or James, excuse me, gives the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he's saying, look, you've got desires. You have passion for that conversation to go a certain way. And when it doesn't go the way that you want it to go, when your wife doesn't think you're awesome, when she doesn't agree with your conclusion, when the husband doesn't think that the wife is making sense in her own attempt to, to do whatever the, the argument is about, then the two begin to quarrel, right? And it's not the other person's fault according to this verse. It's the problem is there's passions or desires within you. You desire... Verse two, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what you see is the problem is not so much the other person, the problem is with you, right? It takes two to tango, takes two to fight. I'd better dance than fight, but you know, it takes two, right, to get into it. And I'm saying, if you could just stop in that moment and be like, oh my goodness, I'm the problem. All this time, I thought it was my friend. I thought it was my sibling. I thought it was my mom, my dad, my husband, my wife. I thought it was the other person, but now I see the problem is I'm still fighting sin in my soul. I still have sin rooted deep in me where things don't go the way I want it to go. I begin to fight, and I begin to quarrel, and I begin to murder in the sense where Jesus says, if you're angry, you've already committed murder in your heart. So we've got to be on guard, right? Sin is so energetic. It's purposeful in its antagonism against God. And, and you're not even sinning first against the other person. You're sinning against, against God. And sinners gladly and freely choose sin. It is human nature to love sin and to go against God. Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, For the mind that is set on sin is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, that's talking about when we were in our depravity prior to salvation. And yet we know even after salvation, those things still tend to sometimes creep in. And we know that it's literally impossible to please God apart from the Spirit, apart from saving grace, apart from Him working in us and transforming us. We know that the heart is deceitful above all things. And even as Christians, again, we have to stand on guard and in our daily life, we have to be careful that we don't begin to love our sin and even delight in our sin. And when we have our mind set on the flesh, we actually are seeking opportunities at times to act out because our conscience convicts us. 
We instinctively know that we are guilty before God, but we still often try to hide or even camouflage our sin. And there, there's so many ways that we do this. Let me just give you three quick ways, just as some practical application of how we try to cover it up. Number one, this is in your outline, we, we try to cover it up. We, we try to deal with our own sin ourselves. And we know that from the beginning, it was that way when Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, verse three, uh, chapter three, verse seven says, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And you remember what they did? Their eyes are open. They realize we fall into sin. There's a sense of modesty that we're naked. And then what does it say? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they made an effort to cover their own sin. Of course, when God showed up in the garden, he's like, hey, that's not good enough. I got to kill an animal and provide clothing which is a representation of a sacrifice has to be made, already pointing to the gospel. You can't cover your sin with a fig leaf. God had to provide the covering for you in the person of Christ. Number two, if we are not trying to cover up our sin, then certainly we're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to justify ourselves. Sin is always someone else's fault, or I couldn't help it, or Genesis 3, just to carry on what's happening here at the fall, Adam blamed Eve, right? In verse 12, it says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. You know, when you first read that, you're like, oh great, Adam's blaming it on Eve. But if you really read it, it's like the woman you gave to me, the woman you gave, it's like Adam's blaming God for giving him a wife that would tempt him to partake of which he did. So he's blame shifting. So we try to justify ourselves. It's not my fault. It's either God's fault, the other person's fault. It's not my fault. Or number three, number three, we can be oblivious to our own sin. We can be oblivious to our own sin. We do sometimes sin in ignorance. It is possible to not realize like, oh, now that I look back on it, I can see how that was sinful. But in the moment, I, I wasn't thinking about it. It's kind of like how David prayed in Psalm 19, 12 through 13, where he says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. It's like David is so sensitive in his conscience to want to honor and please the Lord. He's like, God, if there's anything I'm doing, that's what he prays in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So David's like, man, I know I got a problem. I need God's help. I need to confess all my sin, and I need to pray every day, God, help me. Help me not to fall into this. May, may God see us for who we are, save us because of his grace and then free us from this enslavement. Thank God that 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank God Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Thank God that Isaiah 1:18 says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Just saying, there's a big problem and there's a big solution and his name is Jesus. And while Festus and Agrippa are dancing around the issue, Festus doesn't even know who Jesus is. There's something about this man, Jesus. It's not like Agrippa helps him out any either. But we know the answer. The answer is like, if without Christ, I could fall into the same sin. 
I could fall into grave iniquity if I don't have Christ in the front and center of my life. And so let's move on and to see how this ends. We've looked at the scandalous nature of sin, the deceptive uh, nature of sin as well, and now we're looking at the prideful display of sin. And the next blank says the pomp and circumstance of Agrippa and Bernice. Pomp and circumstance. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, so on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So the scene is one of the most fascinating scenes in all the New Testament. On the next day, the day after Festus had consulted with Agrippa, King Agrippa came together with Bernice amid a great pomp and entered the auditorium. It's interesting here, the word pomp occurs only here in the Bible. It's always important. It's only here. It's the only place in the Bible, and it's actually the word fantasia. Maybe that brings back to mind the 1940 film Fantasia, which was the first of its kind, a cinematic experience combining Western classical music with stunning visual animation from Walt Disney. This word fantasia relates to a grand, showy pageant. And Agrippa and Denise, or, or, or Bernice, rather, were dressed up to the hilt. They, they were looking as if they were about to be on Dancing with the Stars. And so Festus turned Paul's hearing into an occasion to honor Agrippa. Accordingly, Agrippa and Bernice were accompanied by the military commanders and prominent men of the city. And this spectacle must have been breathtaking. Agrippa would have been decked out in all of the fashions of royalty, most likely including a purple robe and maybe even a golden crown or rings or perhaps even a scepter. And Bernice, though not technically Agrippa's queen, would have likely been in all of her attire as well. The tribunes would have all been, been wearing their full dress uniforms and the prominent men their finest clothes. An immaculately dressed honor guard of soldiers would have likely escorted these dignitaries into the auditorium. And when everyone was seated, Festus, Rome's highest ranking official, gave the command and Paul was brought in. And the contrast could not have been more striking. There in the midst of the assembly hall, with all of the who's who present, walked in a middle-aged, plain, and meager-looking man. You say, you don't think Paul looked that good? Well, I'm just taking it from 2 Corinthians 10.10, which says, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Murmurs of surprise may have greeted his appearance. Many in the crowd might have found it hard to believe that this seemingly unimpressive man was the cause of such an occasion. But appearances can be deceiving. We know that Paul was one of the most noble and powerful men who ever lived, and the crowd was a collection of pompous fools. Proverbs 19.1, better is a poor person in, who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Your next blank, the self-focused outward flattery of Festus, the self-focused and outward focused flattery of Festus, those last verses which we've already read just point to the fact that Festus reaccounts yet again the fact that King Agrippa, he's addressing King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that they ought not, uh, shouting that he, that Paul, ought not live any longer, but I have found that he has done nothing deserving death and he himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and 
and sent him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Basically, he's saying, look, I don't know what to do with this guy. And so King Agrippa, maybe you could inform me a little bit more so that when I send him to Caesar, which he's appealed to, I have something to write because if I don't write the charge that's against him, I could look like a fool and that would be absurd. It could cost me possibly my own, uh, my own position or even my own life. That's kind of what's going on here and we can dive into that maybe a little bit more next time. But what I wanted you to end with is just in this passage, we've seen that Agrippa entered the hall with attention to pageantry while Paul entered in chains. A company of high-ranking commanders and influential city leaders surrounded Agrippa, but Paul stood alone. Agrippa wielded great human power. Paul carried divine truth. This encounter with all of its contrasts will become the first of many between Rome and Christendom. The blind are leading the blind, and the whole crowd is going with them. Only Paul, in this position at this time, sees the truth, knows the person of Christ, and we'll find out next time, will testify to his dying breath about the validity of Jesus Christ truly being raised from the dead. A couple of take-home applications for this morning. How can you make sure that you're not being led astray by the blind? You know, you may not follow a King Agrippa or a Festus, but someone else may be leading you astray. Could be someone in the church, could be a friend, could be a news source, could be gossip, could be slander, could be your own feelings. We have to make sure we're rooted and grounded in God's word so that we can hold on to the truth. Number two, how can you guard yourself against the rationalization of sin? I'm just saying, we're learning from these guys how not to do it, so how can we guard ourselves that we don't rationalize clear things that are sin like murder or fighting? or lust, or immorality, or drunkenness? How can we guard ourselves against rationalizing any of the sins you might struggle with? And number three, what are some ways you can keep your pride in check? What are some ways that you can keep your pride in check? I mean, these people out here are displaying their pride in everything they're wearing and everything they're doing. God's called us to be humble, to be focused on him. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Christ and his glory. Don't be caught up letting the blind lead the blind. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to dive in to Acts 25. And as always, there's more here than we can adequately cover. And yet I think we get the gist of the setup here in this particular trial. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom as we continue to look at this trial, as we see Paul's defense yet again, not being focused on his personal uh, defense so much as proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming the, the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that we would continue just to learn from the, 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 uh, the, the narrative, all the observations that we could make that would make us consider in our own lives how we can make sure that we're not being led astray by the blind, that we're not being deceived by sin, that we would not rationalize any longer, but rather we would come to you this morning broken and that we would ask for your grace and your infinite mercy to cover our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness that we could walk in the light and walk in the truth, walk in close proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns forever. Pray that you would be glorified in our time as we partake in the Lord's table. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.